All right, you guys, introducing Clive Stafford Smith. He's a lawyer from uh, Great Britain from the outfit Reprieve, where they represent the most wretched of refuse, like those locked away at Guantanamo Bay Prison. Welcome back to the show, Clive. How are you doing, sir? Well, look, let me tell you first. When you say I, I represent the wretched of refuse, I don't represent you, so it can't be that wretched. <laughs> Also, I've moved on from Retrieve, actually. I founded Retrieve many years ago, but all founders should piss off after a while. So I've moved on and set up a new charity now. Still work with Retrieve a lot, but uh, oh, I see. the new charity is called the 3D Center, where we help young people to come up with some passionate thing that they can spend the next 50 years doing, making the world a better place. Great. The 3D go. Center, you say? Yep, 3dc.org.uk. And even though I am in England, I'm a true blue American. I just want you to know that's, uh, that's the way it is. Originally from the UK, you just still sound funny, that's all, but you're one of uh, us now. Can I just point out, Scott, yes. that you're accusing me of having an accent. <laughs> it's my language. It's you that has the accent. I hate to break the news to you. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, we perfected it, though, like pizza, you know, oh, like, like Mexican food. Good. Yeah, the poor Mexicans and Italians, you know, really have nothing to boast about <laughs> after you. All right. Well, we haven't come for the falafels and all of that stuff yet, but soon enough. Uh, so, yeah. And listen, by the way, we got to talk about this thing, which uh, I'm sure you had a hand in getting published here um, by Ahmed Rabani, your client, nice. published at the Huffington Post. The U.S. Mm-hmm. has held me for 19 years without a charge. I have just mm-hmm. one chance to be freed. It's funny because the first part of that headline there, it just sounds like, but that's impossible because this is America and everybody knows that that's not the way it works around here, right? Well, it's true. You know, I was just talking today with someone. You know, I just got back from Guantanamo last night and I saw Ahmed a couple of times while I was in Guantanamo. And I was just talking to someone today about, you know, when you look through the U.S. Constitution, it has a whole bunch of provisions that are in there, in the main body of the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights, that were all aimed at wicked things that Mad King George was doing to the colonial Americans before 1776 that just aggravated everyone in the U.S., And that's why there was a revolution and that's why there was a constitution and that's why there was a Bill of Rights. And every single one of those rules is being violated in Ahmed's case. Um, You know, even bizarre things like a Bill of Attainder, which is something most people don't know what it is, but it's where the government announces that they're going to keep you locked up without bothering with giving you a trial. That was called the Bill of Attainder. King George used to do it, went to people who annoyed him. And we put it in our constitution that he couldn't do it. And we're doing it to Ahmed because that's exactly what's happening to him. Well, my understanding of the Bill of Attainder was that it that was a law that would apply to a specific person or group of persons rather than be equally applied yeah. to everyone. Is that different? Well, exactly, exactly. But it, it, it's either a law or an edict from, you know, the, the president. And when Donald Trump announced that everyone was going to stay in Guantanamo who was in Guantanamo, that was a bill of attainder. 
because he was the president and he was saying, well, we're not going to give you a trial, but we're going to keep you there forever. And, you know, that's exactly what the founders were trying to prevent when they created the Constitution, that some, you know, some populist politician could just screw over people that he didn't like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you know, so we're, we're deep in the future here now where a lot of this stuff was happening when a good part of our audience were just kids and they don't really know about this stuff. So would it be fair for me to stipulate, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, that everybody who originally was thrown in Guantanamo was just some nobody, maybe somebody from the Taliban, but anyone who was well, actually a high level Al Qaeda target in the terror war, they were abducted and taken off to CIA black sites. And they weren't even brought to Guantanamo until 2006. But at first, it was basically just full of a bunch of Uyghurs and a bunch of Taliban foot soldiers and goat herders and whoever had been kidnapped and ransomed by the Pakistani ISI because Bush needed a PR stunt to try to pretend that there were hundreds and hundreds of terrorists out there coming for us. And look, they're Pashtuns. I mean, the real issue was that the Bush administration needed to convince the American people that they were being tough on these terrorists and that we had a bunch of bad guys. And you're you're right that um, so many of them ended up there from Pakistan. I When I first got into Gitmo, you know, I brought, along with two friends, the very first case against Guantanamo, Rasul versus Bush. And when we won in a conservative, conservative Supreme Court. Um, You know, I finally got down to see the prisoners in late 2004. And to be honest with you, I thought I was going to meet a bunch of people and I was going to have a lot of explaining to do for them. You know, Donald Rumsfeld said they were the worst of the worst terrorists in the world. And, you know, it wasn't going to be true for everyone. But it never occurred to me that our government could get it so horribly wrong. And I got to Guantanamo expecting to find a bunch of people who had been fighting on the battlefield of Afghanistan. And I found a slew of people like like Mohammed El-Gharani, who was a 14-year-old kid when he was seized in Karachi, which I looked it up and it's just over a thousand miles from Kabul. Never been to Afghanistan. He was from Saudi Arabia. And he'd gone to Pakistan to study English. And he ended up in Guantanamo. And the thing that actually ultimately helped explain it all, and it took me a while to figure this out, was that we were offering money, bounties, for anyone who turned in some bad dude Arab who had to be a terrorist. And actually... You know, I found some of the flyers, the bounty flyers of, you know, a bearded guy here and then a big dollar sign and then a bearded guy behind bars. And um, and then I read the rather dreadful autobiography of General Musharraf, who was the president of, um, of uh, Pakistan at the time, where he boasted that more than half of Guantanamo's prisoners had been sold to the Americans for millions of dollars in bounties mm-hmm. that his people had collected. And, you know, ultimately, it's, uh, I wouldn't tar everyone with the same brush, but there's an awful lot of people, certainly in Karachi, who'd sell their own granny for, you know, the amount of money we were giving them. And that explained why we got it so horribly wrong. But, you know, I had a really hard time finding anyone who had anything to do with terrorism when I first went there. 
And it was, you know, that, that came as quite a surprise to me, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember back in 2006 when they first brought Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib and these other few guys from the CIA prisons and turned them over to Guantanamo. And then like a week later, they're like, yeah, look, see, Guantanamo is full of these terrorists when it had been like that for five years already. And it was full of a bunch of people who I guess there was that guy, Katani. Maybe there were a couple of guys, but. I mean, there, there was a small number of people, but even the people in the CIA uh, black sites were not all, um, you know, even today. Good point. The people yeah. they refer, I mean, look, let me tell you the story of Binyam Mohammed. I don't know if you remember him, but Binyam. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I just wanted to say that just when, when I said that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the guilty went to the CIA, I didn't mean to imply that everybody went to the CIA was guilty because you're right. That's a very important distinction to make there statistically. And and I do remember the case of Binya Mohammed. Please tell him about it. Well, well, well I, I would actually, no, let me move on. Well, we'll talk about Ahmed Rabani in a minute. I sure. Think, because he was actually another people who went to the black sites. But Binya Mohammed. He was a British guy, right? And he was, again, detained. He was in Karachi when he was detained. And the, the U.S. bought him for a bounty. And they start interrogating him. And Binyam said, look, I'm happy to talk to the British, but I'm not talking to you Americans because I got nothing to do with you. That made the U.S. folk think that he was trying to hide something. So instead of just inviting the British to come and talk to him, they started torturing him. And in the end, they took him to Morocco because they thought that if he wasn't talking freely, you know, that meant he was guilty. Therefore, we should torture him. They took him to Morocco where they took razor blades to his genitals. And he was asked about you know, whether he knew anything about nuclear weapons. And he said, no, of course I don't. But then they tortured him some more. And he said, well, all right, I once read an article about how to make a nuclear bomb. And he told them how to do it. And Scott, I'm not sure about how your physics is, but um, you tell me what you think of this. He said, you take uranium, you put it in a bucket, and you have to swing it around your head for 45 minutes as fast as you can. And that separates uranium-239 from uranium-235. And there you've got it, your weapons-grade um, uranium, and you've got a nuclear bomb. So what do you reckon from your education as a physicist? Do you think that's true? <laughs> you know, uh, as somebody who's been studying the dispute over Iran's civilian, safeguarded civilian nuclear program all these years, I'd have to say that, uh, yeah, he got that from a Rolling Stone magazine article that, in fact, was you know, written actually, Yeah, it was, it was by Rosa Brooks's mother, whoever that is. Remember Rosa yeah, Brooks from the L.A. Times? Totally and, uh -huh. Of course. And and that I tracked Rosa down because I found that, that whole article. Oh yeah. And it turned it was a spoof, right? Yeah. And and the US interrogators just weren't sure what to make of it. It sounded pretty silly to them because, you know, let's face it, Iran has been trying to get these centrifuges all this time. And if you could make a nuclear bomb by swinging it around in a bucket, surely that would be much simpler. <laughs> and, and the whole nuclear bomb plot, the, the Attorney General of the United States interrupted his visit to Moscow uh -huh. to announce that we had solved a nuclear bomb plot with this guy, Benjamin Mohammed. He couldn't even get the name right. Um, and said that, you know, this had been solved by good American work. 
And it was this nonsense. I believe the legal term is total bullshit <laughs> that, um, that Binyam had said when he was being tortured because he'd read some silly article from years before. Well, and then this was when you mentioned that, you know, Ashcroft interrupted his trip to Moscow. It was to make this announcement from Times Square that they had handed over Jose Padilla, who exactly, had yeah. been arrested, who was an American-born American citizen, arrested by FBI agents in blue parkas at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, who was then turned over to Donald Rumsfeld and the military and the CIA to be tortured and held without charge for two years at the brig in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, before he was finally uh, turned over to the Justice Department and prosecuted. So, and he was meant to be the co-conspirator with Binyam Mohammed. Right. Yeah. Based on this part. story that they tortured out of this poor yeah. guy by cutting him with razor blades until he would make yeah. up something, you know. Well, and there's, there's one of the things that there's a big distinction. I mean, if I torture you, Scott, and I get you to say that you're an evil like Al Qaeda terrorist. That's one thing. It's not good. You go to prison because you said that. But when I torture Binyam and get him to say this nuclear bomb plot nonsense and spread it around the United States, what I do is I put the entire country in fear that they're all going to die based on something that's just utter nonsense. And if there's one lesson that we've had from all the years since 9-11, it's the use of the politics of fear by people to frighten folk. You know, there was a very interesting thing I was just looking at the other day, which when they killed, um, you know, the, the Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, they found a bunch of, um, of documents with him, one of which was a list of all the people that were the, you know, major players in Al-Qaeda as of 9-11. Um, and it was 170 names of whom... A number had died, a number had been detained by um, other people, and then a whole bunch of them had just decided to go home. And in the end, there were only 120 names, of which five were bin Laden's sons, You know, one of whom, Omar bin Laden, lived in Normandy and was married to a British woman and was just minding his own business. That was Al-Qaeda. And... You know, the idea that the United States would view this as an existential threat is just absurd. You know, you think about, it doesn't take many people to do something horrible. You think about Tim McVeigh blowing up the Oklahoma, um, you know, bomb and killing 168 people and wounding 685 others and killing 23 children. You know, it only took one mad, deranged guy who was in yeah, that case he had a what bunch of think? friends that helped him do that. Everybody knows that. He, did, he didn't have that many friends, and only one other person was prosecuted. Um, and it wasn't a huge conspiracy. But on the other hand, it was part of that whole patriot nonsense, which uh, has been a much greater threat, in my view, to the United States. Well, I understand your larger point. But in this case, it was actually the neo-Nazis, not the patriots, who did it. And there were about you know, eight or 10 of them who helped McVeigh with that plot and were allowed to get away with it because they were all FBI informants who had double-crossed their agent handlers. And someone might have been held accountable for uh, failing to prevent the thing that they could have prevented. So they uh, well, one person, in the end, one person was held accountable and that was Tim McVeigh. Yeah. But my only point is that, you know, you have people who do deranged things um, and normally we prosecute them criminally. Yeah. 
in the case yeah in the case of 9-11 we wanted to turn it into a war which was just utterly mad because of course that's what bin laden wanted he wanted to be a martyr to some you know ridiculous war yeah you know and, i gave a speech yeah. one time where the guy introduced me and i'm pretty sure he was the one who pointed this out that you know at the time it to him it seemed like the pearl harbor attack you know surprise mm. attack three thousand killed and so mm. even though, yeah, the Japanese were flying their own zeros, and in this case, these guys had to hijack our airliners to do it, that distinction was lost. And the idea was that there is something like the Japanese empire out there and mm. that must be defended from. And, you know, as Republican media, especially at the time, put it, the Islamic Caliphate. And for those mm. who don't know geography, as far as they know, it's like the lost continent of Atlantis out there. It's the Caliphate out there that's coming for us. And so we have to defend against it. And so it, it very superficially, it made sense because they did get one hell of a one-off attack done that day. But they, you know? they did. I mean, it, it was awful, obviously. And it was both, there were two factors, it seems to me, about that. One was that it was so dramatic on television that, you know, I, I remember, you remember watching that happening on the dead happen. But the second is this, that we as Americans have actually been really lucky um, that if you think about the, the times that the United States has actually been attacked itself, you can name them. You can give me the exact dates, right? What are the times the U.S. integrity has been attacked directly? There's 9-11, so you know, the 11th of September, 2001. There is December the 7th, 1941, right? Yeah. There is the, the time the British burned the White House down, which used to be gray, by the way, until the British burned it down, now it's white. What other times has the US ever been invaded? Well, the North invaded the South. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's, no, that's not another country. The truth is we're very, very lucky. If you look at the, you know, Russia, for example, they get invaded by everyone every other week. Right, you know, including by the US, by the way, right, after World War I. Yeah. And so, you know, Europeans have kind of sadly got used to this. And if you look around the world, so many other countries have got used to wars. There have been far, far too many. But this was so extraordinary for the U.S. It was like Pearl Harbor for the U.S. But of course, it wasn't like Pearl Harbor because you were being attacked by a group of people. It was actually, you know, pretty petty until we imagined them into being this existential threat and um, then started various wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan to try to counter this threat. And then we did all sorts of awful things like torturing people and locking them up without trial, assassinating them, which have just exacerbated the problem. And, you know, you have to look at the war in Afghanistan, 20 years and within days, we're right back where we started. I mean, what a dreadfully pointless thing to do. Yeah. All right. Now, as far as Guantanamo Bay, there were 748 or something like that uh, people there. Seven, and Bush... Seven, 780 originally. That's 780, I'm sorry. And, and Bush sent the vast majority of them home before Obama ever came to town. And he sent a bunch of them home. And they changed the rules to give some of them writs of habeas corpus for a little while until they then sabotaged that and stopped doing that. Um, and so now I believe there, is it 39 or 40 guys left? 39 left. Uh -huh. I still have seven of them. Yeah. And then 
Now, um, this guy, Ahmed Rabani, you've represented him for how long? Oh, for years. Um, I first met Ahmed, you know, I think 14 years ago. And Ahmed told me his story. And, you know, I found him pretty credible when I met him. But, you know, you just don't know for a while. And what he told me was this, that on September the 10th, 2002, he was minding his own business in Karachi. Again, a city that's a thousand miles from Kabul. And these people swooped in, Pakistanis, authorities swooped in and grabbed him and dragged him off and sold him off to the Americans, saying that he was a terrorist called Hassan Gul. Well, Hassan Gul was a real terrorist. He just wasn't Ahmed Rabani. And so from the very beginning, Ahmed tells me, he said, look, I'm Ahmed Rabani. I'm a taxi driver. I'm not Hassan Gul. And they wouldn't believe him. And then they shipped him to the dark prison in Kabul, where for 540 days, a year, more, almost two years, they tortured him in pretty unspeakable ways. You know, they were using, and there are 60 different forms of torture we've identified that we used on him. You know, the most notorious being Strapado, where he was hung by his wrists the way that the uh, Spanish Inquisition used to do it. And so on and so forth. Let, let me ask you here, Clive, is do I have yeah. it right then? If he's at the salt pit there north of Kabul, that means he's under CIA control. This is yeah, different no, than if he had been shipped off to Bagram under the control of the military. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so go he ahead. was one of the he was one of the hundred and nineteen people who were put in the what was referred to as the enhanced interrogation um, process. Now, you know, he tells me this whole story and he tells me the great details. And as I say, I found him pretty credible, but you never know um, until <laughs> we did know, which was when the Senate report came out in 2014. And they corroborated everything I had said, but they told a few things that we didn't know. One of which, the first was that he was subjected to um, torture without authorization, which I've always wondered to myself, which is worse? Is it worse that the government authorized torture or is it worse that they did it without authorization? I don't know. Well, for All you, for you, Clive, his lawyer, it should be better that they did it without authorization. But then it turns out that it doesn't make any difference because there's still no accountability whatsoever. There isn't. There isn't. But then the next thing actually was actually much more surprising um, that. During the time that he was held in the dark prison in Kabul, who should the U.S. capture but Hassan Gul? And they brought him to the same prison at the same time that Ahmed was being held there, where Ahmed, remember, was still denying that he was Hassan Gul. And because Hassan Gul was cooperative and told the U.S. all sorts of stuff, in the end, he, he only spent two days in the dark prison and he was held for longer. But in the end, he was returned to Pakistan, where the Pakistanis released him. He went back to his wicked ways, and he ended up getting killed in a drone strike in 2012. Ahmed Rabani was not released. He was given a one-way ticket to be rendered to Guantanamo Bay on the torture plane, plane in, in September 2004. The torture plane, because it was full of 10 people who had been taken to different torture sites, including Benyam Mohammed. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up in Guantanamo Bay. And so, you know, it's just bizarre that the government learns that he's not 
Hassan Joel. He that they get Hassan Joel, they set Hassan Joel free, and they take the guy who's not Hassan Joel to Guantanamo, where you know where I ended up representing him. And you know there were very human consequences to this because he had just got married when he was um, kidnapped. I think is the only word for it by the Pakistanis and sold to the Americans. And his wife was pregnant. He didn't even know she was pregnant. So his son, Jawad, was born about seven months later. I've met Jawad. He's a nice kid. He's now 18 years old in Karachi. Mm. And Jawad has never touched his dad. And his dad has never touched Jawad. And, you know, I've got a son who's 13. And the idea of that, I think, is one of the saddest, saddest things. Because for all, you know, if you ask Dan Laid about what he really cares about, for all the torture and all the rest of it, it's really that he's never touched his son and he's not been there as his son has grown up. Yeah. And now just to be uh, perfectly clear here, when you say the torture report, the Senate torture report confirmed all this, you mean confirmed all this. It says in there, yes, we got the wrong guy. And we, mm. we, we did eventually get the right guy, but then we let him go. But then we killed him with a drone strike. And the guy that's at Guantanamo now is not the one we were looking for. It says all that in there? It says all of that in there. And more than that, it says from September the 11th, 2002, a day after they detained him, most of the people thought they had the wrong guy. But they were not willing to take the risk that they made a mistake. So that's why they shipped him to be tortured. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of them pretty much knew they had the wrong guy already. And so why did they do it? You know, why did they not just say, well, you know, sorry, I set you free. And OK, we paid a bounty for you, but they gave us the wrong chap. Mm, man. You and know, he's I... still there. And, you know, I, I saw him last week and he was, you know, what was fascinating about human resilience is that Ahmed was pretty cheerful. You know, I've been working with him because what Ahmed really is, he's quite a good artist and he's done these amazing pictures of his torture. And one of the things he showed me last week, which I, you know, I can talk about what I saw, um, is a big, big picture about his whole voyage from one torture prison to the next. But that's not really his passion. His real passion is to be a chef. And so I've been getting his uh, recipes out and I've got this wonderful chef in England, who's testing all his recipes so we can do a Guantanamo cookbook. Yeah. And, and here I'm reading strike. about his hunger strike and them feeding him by shoving this rubber tube up his nose and down his throat and force feeding him to uh, keep him alive. You know, he's been on hunger strike. How, what's the longest, Scott, you've ever gone without food? A couple of days, but yeah, not too many. Right. You know, I did it for a week just to, in sympathy, just to see what it was like. Ahmed Rabani. Was on, has been on hunger strike since February 2013. So that's now over eight years. And they stick this tube up his nose and force feed him every day to keep him alive because they don't want the embarrassment of someone dying on a peaceful protest. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what, you know, if you can just imagine, he was 160 some pounds when he was first detained. He's now, you know, the lowest he's been is 78 pounds so one of the things he says because you got a nice sense of humor he says look i'm just escaping from guantanamo and more than 50 percent of me has escaped already and whether the rest of me <laughs> escapes 
in a book so most of them may. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, I guess. <laughs> um, man, I, I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here trying to search my own website looking for this guy's name and I can't find it. I'm sorry, it's but it's a, a almost certain Air Force officer named Silver something um, who was a JAG lawyer who represented a guy that I think he finally got freed um, after this interview when I talked to the guy. But this was a guy, and I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, this is the guy who, uh, the evidence against him for his uh, preparation of chemical weapons for Al-Qaeda was simply little Tupperware thingies full of salt and sugar, and I forgot what the third one was. Maybe it was just salt and sugar. And then mm -hmm. after years of holding him down there, they finally admitted that that was all that it was. Yeah. And more than a decade. When I say years, I mean, yeah, more than 10 years. Well, this, this is the thing, you know, when you talk about classified issues, you know, secret evidence and so forth, the thing I think that's, when you look at all the things we've done since 9-11, you know, there are all sorts of incredibly bad ideas that our government has had, um, you know, whether it be torture, whether it be detention without trial, whether it be assassination with drones, whatever. But, you know, the thing that ultimately I think is the most pernicious is secrecy and because we have so radically enhanced secrecy and evaporated transparency and the reason we do that is what we say is all this stuff is secret you know when my clients talk to me now 20 years after they were first detained every word they say is is classified secret until they let it out now you know there cannot be anything that's any threat to the united states that ahmed rabani knows but there are things that he knows that are just monumentally embarrassing to the United States. And that's what the government's done. They've started conflating um, classification and secrecy with political embarrassment. And so, you know, all these things I learn as I'm in Guantanamo that are just awful, that they're just embarrassing. They're not a threat to the US. They're just a threat to a bunch of politicians who made very bad judgments. You know, this is very worrying because our government is increasingly using secrecy to hide their pretty wicked ways sometimes. Yeah. All right. Now, so, um, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, the because of the Supreme Court rulings, they started giving these guys a writ of habeas corpus. But then they found I forgot exactly the loophole, but they found a way to shut that down. And it seems yeah, like but there, there, there are two ways they did it. The first way was they just changed the rules and they said that instead, you know, no longer, it used to be that you're presumed innocent, the government has to prove stuff and whatever. Now the rule is that everything the government says is presumed to be true and presumed to be reliable and you have to prove otherwise. But actually the far worse thing in the end is the DC circuit held that if the... Um, if, if even if you know we win, and if we show that this person was illegally uh, detained twenty years ago and has been illegally detained for twenty years, the courts have no power to order the release. You know? So they can grant the writ of habeas corpus, but it doesn't mean you go home. And it is—it's sort of like the whole process. You know, right now there are nine. And then the Supremes have refused to review that decision. Is that it? Yeah, they have. And, you know, right now there are nine people who are cleared for release 
but they're still there. Yeah. And I don't know if you're going to hum the Hotel California, but it really is, you know, you can check out, but you can never leave. Yeah, no, and I hate the Eagles, it, man, but I get you. Well, yeah. now, so what are you going to do with this guy? Oh, I you mean, can't he's... say you hate the Eagles, Scott. Come on, that's, <laughs> a, that's an American of you. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm like that guy in the robe from that movie. Anyway, listen, uh-huh. uh, well, the egos, that's what I call way, them. Scott. Huh? I'm yeah. going to give you another, you know, let's pretend. If you can't deal with the Eagles, Scott, let's talk about Roach Motel. You uh-huh. remember Roach Motel? The, the, the slogan was, they check in, but they don't check out. There you go. You know? so we, we can use that if you don't like yes. it. Listen, we're on the same page eye to eye now. I totally read you. <laughs> listen, um, but so... Now, this is one of the guys that was, you know, in the category of will never be charged um, and will never be released, I guess. And so then what are you going to do about it? It's 2021 already. It's almost over. In fact, we're like coming up on 22. Yeah, I know. Well, look, you know, I'm glad to say that on um, May the 18th, we cleared his brother, who's also got locked up. Um, Abdul Rabani and Sir Philip Paracha, the 74-year-old Pakistani guy. So two of the three Pakistanis are cleared. And we had a hearing with for Ahmed on the 17th of August when, you know, when I was headed down there. And um, I'd be very surprised if he's not cleared. I think he will be. I think Biden actually wants to get rid of these guys. So we'll have three Pakistanis who are cleared for release. Now, I hope at that point we get to fly them home because, you know, I've, I've talked to... Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, about it. I know Imran pretty well, and he wants the guys home. <clears throat> They've said made that very clear to the United States. They want them home. And I hope to goodness they'll just put them on a flight. Now, one thing I can guarantee you, though, is that they won't say those difficult words, I'm sorry. They'll never say that. The U.S. won't. And that's very sad because they should. They should apologize. Yeah, absolutely <coughs> right. Yeah, absolutely right about that. All right, well, listen, I'm so sorry we're out of time here. i got to go on to my next one, but thank you so much for all your efforts on behalf of these people, Clive, and for your time on the show. I really appreciate it a lot. Uh, thanks, Scott. Nice to talk to you. All right, you guys, that is Clive Stafford-Smith, now with the 3D Center. And please check out this article, as I says on Twitter there, and this was appealing to people, I think. I don't know. It'll only take you a couple of minutes to read this. The U.S. has held me for 19 years without a charge. I have just one chance to be freed by Ahmed Rabani.